Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Christian Axbo Nielsen. I am Associate Professor of History and Human Security at the University of Aarhus in Denmark. My guest today is Sylvia Goldbaum Tarabini Frankapane, who is a historian and an independent scholar. She obtained her PhD in modern history from Technical University Berlin, and she has an MA in comparative literature from the University of Copenhagen. Her research focuses primarily on everyday life in the Theresienstadt ghetto, seen from the perspective of Danish ghetto inmates there during the Second World War. Today, we will be discussing Sylvia's fascinating new book, The Jews of Denmark in the Holocaust, Life and Death in the Theresienstadt Ghetto, published by Routledge in 2021. Sylvia, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'd like to start out today by talking about why you decided to write this particular book. What is it that motivated you? <clears throat> yeah, the, the book is actually based on my PhD dissertation. And um, I began researching the topic of the Danes in Theresienstadt because I realized that despite the fact that 89% of the Jewish deportees from Denmark survived, we did not know very much about their experiences. In Danish Holocaust historiography, the focus has been very strong on the successful flight to Sweden. And even when dealing with Theresienstadt, the focus was always relief. So it would be about Denmark's response to the deportation in terms of various types of aid, but only little was known about the Jewish perspectives. So to give an example, there is a difference between looking at how the shipments of food parcels came around and were organized in Copenhagen and to go into how they were received by the prisoners in Theresienstadt. These are two very different points of views. So I decided that instead of looking at this part of Danish history from Copenhagen through the documentation of the Danish administration, I wanted to look at it from Theresienstadt, seen through the eyes of the deportees. And uh, yeah, that's what I, what I have done, I think. <laughs> so you're investigating, in a sense, uh, a part of the history that previous has, previously has not received sufficient attention by Danish historians. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> of course, uh, for... Listeners who may not be familiar with the history of Danish Jews during the Second World War, uh, we tend to regard it as a positive story. And the focus, as Sylvia says, is tremendously on the rescue of the Danish Jews. So uh, one of the things that drew me to this book is, uh, as I said, your focus on uh, different uh, untold aspects of this history um, and your ability to dive down into this documentation. Now, you talk about Danish Jews, um, and the title is, of course, The Jews of Denmark. Uh, now, that is obviously a reductionism, like all groups. So what can you tell us about the different categories of Danish Jews? How many are we talking about? Um, what kind of categories are you operating with? And of course, 
how many of them ended up in Theresienstadt? Yeah, in uh, in forty three, uh, the the Judenaktion it took place uh, on the first of October nineteen forty three, and. The next day, the first two transports left Denmark and then two other transports left later. Uh, at this point uh, in time, there were about 6,500 6, uh, Jews in Denmark. Um, and they came from, from three different uh, groups. About a quarter of them belonged to uh, old Danish Jewish families who had lived in the country for centuries. Half of them were Eastern European Jews from the former Russian Empire who had fled pogroms in the time around World War I. And the last quarter were refugees from Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia, many of whom were young people on Harshara who had come to Denmark to study agriculture in preparation for immigration to Palestine. But then they got stuck when the war broke out. And this division, it actually, it's mirrored precisely in uh, in the group that are deportees, uh, that, that are deported, so that a quarter of the deportees came from these old Danish-Jewish families, and half of them were among the Russian Jews, and the last quarter were refugees. All in all, there were... 470 people who were deported to Theresienstadt. So this is like a very small group um, compared to to the Theresienstadt society, which at the time of the arrival of the Danes counted uh, around 40,000 people. So the Danes were, it was 223 women and girls and 247 men and boys. The youngest prisoner was a baby girl of six months old, and the oldest was a man, <clears throat> uh, an, an, an elderly man of 89 years old. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mix of people uh, with, uh, with various backgrounds, and, uh, uh, but they, they mirror in background the Jewish community at the time, they do not mirror uh, the age structure. That they are more elderly deported uh, in comparison, and um, be- because many of them uh, did not try to flee, they did not think that uh, that the Judenaktion would uh, would uh, aim at them being. Uh, 85 years old, for example, no, nobody or, or not very many imagined that. So Right, and that's a quite a dramatic uh, age span, as, as you note. Um, and, and of course, uh, a number of different categories of, of backgrounds in Denmark prior to the uh, deportation. Now, um, in the context of the Holocaust as a whole, Theresienstadt is uh, in many uh corners regarded as as an exception it's certainly not the concentration camp or death camp that usually comes to mind when people first think about uh the holocaust um and you mention in the book that uh italian jews uh as well as norwegian jews were at the same time or in fact earlier being deported to uh perhaps the most notorious of the concentration and death camps auschwitz Birkenau. Uh, so my question is, why were the 
Danish Jews deported to Theresienstadt instead of to other concentration camps or immediately to some of the death camps in occupied Poland. Do we know anything about that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. And um, unfortunately, there is almost no docu documentation regarding this. Um, it is often just explained with a reference to the Danish cooperation policy, uh, a policy that had begun immediately when German troops entered Denmark on April 9, 1940. And... Um, This policy continued until the government stepped down in late August 43, so that is a month before the Judenaktion. But then in practice, the resignation did not have much impact uh, since the cooperation with the occupants carried on through the permanent secretaries of the ministries. But um, in my opinion, this does not in itself give... Uh, give uh, a good answer of uh, why they were brought to Theresienstadt. Um, and there are so many open ends regarding this that we do not know very much about. Uh, Werner Best, the Reich plenipotentiary, he even used this in his uh, post-war defense and claimed that he was responsible for saving the Jews in Denmark, uh, not only by assuring that a warning was leaked before the Judenaktion so that people had the chance to, to flee, Uh, and here we should remember that he is actually the one that instigated this same action. So, um, but then he claimed also that he was the one that assured that the Jews from Denmark were sent to Theresienstadt and remained there. That is according to Werner Best. According to Eichmann, it was Himmler who had ordered that they were sent to Theresienstadt. Um, there's very, very little available documentation about this. Um, one could think uh, that the placement uh, of Danish Jews in Theresienstadt was linked with the propaganda. But, uh, yeah, the, it's, it's really hard to find clear answers. I have lots of questions myself uh, regarding this, like precisely when and by whom was this decision of bringing them to Theresienstadt taken, and who was behind the idea of exempting them from further transports. In Theresienstadt, the Danes were the only national group who were, during the entire period, exempted from, uh, from transports uh, to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And what was the precise purpose of keeping them alive? And What is the connection between the deportation of Jews from Denmark in October 43 and the project of a future visit to the ghetto? There are so many unanswered question, uh, questions. And uh, yeah, that uh, it would be interesting if we could find more documentation regarding this. But yeah, for me, until now, it has been in vain uh, when I have looked for this. So... But I think that's also a very important and very interesting statement about the field of, of Holocaust um, research in general, that uh, these topics, which are in many ways some of the most uh, studied historical topics, that we still are running into quite obvious and important questions where we are simply not able to uh, come to an answer or a conclusion based on the available documentation. And I think that's one of the strong points of your book as well, that 
you make it very clear where these remaining gaps in our knowledge are. Uh, I just want to mention for the readers who may not be that familiar with the history of the Holocaust that the term Judenaktion refers to the operation launched to uh, remove uh, Jews uh, from from Denmark, uh, which occurred uh, in uh, the autumn of 1943. Now, we've already talked about the uh, fact that there were different categories or groups uh, of Jews uh, living in Denmark at the time, that it was a heterogeneous group. And you note in your book that the vast majority of Danish Jews lived in the Copenhagen area prior to the German occupation. Uh, and you also state, and here I'm quoting, that social distinctions which existed among the Jews in Denmark before deportation continued to play an important role in the ghetto. Uh, so I'd like to hear more about how these distinctions or these uh, differences within the Danish Jews affected their interaction and their experience after their arrival at the Theresienstadt ghetto. Yeah, yeah, there are these three different groups that I mentioned earlier, and uh, the old Danish Jewish families. They were they were the most uh, assimilated uh, group. They were part of higher middle class or upper class. Um, and then there were the the so called Russians. They were often artisans, shoemakers, or tailors. The older generation was Yiddish speaking, and the younger, who were born in Denmark, spoke also well Danish. Some of them also raised in social status and started studying. Already in Denmark, as you said, the distinction between the groups was quite important. For example, only in the 30s did the Russians, a group that was twice as large as the old Danish families, get represented in the leadership of the Jewish community. So already in Copenhagen, there were these uh, distinctions. And I think it's safe to say that these two groups did not intermingle very much uh, in Denmark. This changed in a way in Theresienstadt, where they got much closer, at least physically, since they were forced to live together. But um, in a diary, for example, written by a young man from one of the old Danish Jewish families, it's full of uh, despising comments about the Eastern Jews, as he called them whom he considers so different from himself. Um, <clears throat> at one point, he even writes about the chief rabbi who was born in Budapest. And here I quote, he is a Balkan Jew and he remains a Balkan Jew, unquote. Uh, and he did not mean that in any positive way. Uh, so there's, there are sometimes really tensions, uh, which, of course, were probably enhanced because of the overall living conditions. Um, <clears throat> in the ghetto, the third group, the, the refugees, they probably had, they, or they, not probably, they had much less contact with the other Danish ghetto inmates. And that's perhaps because they integrated more easily in the ghetto society as uh, such, being German-speaking and some of them even Czech-speaking. Uh, many of the refugees also met relatives in the ghetto. So, but uh, regarding the old Danish uh, Jewish families and the Russians, there were some points in particular where the Russians felt that the old Danish families were treated much better than them. 
This concerns, for example, distribution of food parcels sent from Denmark. The parcels were each labeled with the recipient's name, but in cases where a parcel could uh, not be delivered uh, because the recipient had died or, if not from Denmark, had been sent in transport, then the Danish chief rabbi would get the parcel and distribute it to whom he thought needed it. These extra parcels seem to have been much easier to obtain for members of the old Danish families. Um, And also when it concerns better living conditions that a number of inmates from Denmark were assigned shortly before the visit of the international delegation in June 44. Also here, the Russians felt that the old Danish Jewish families were treated much better. So there is this... uh, yeah, it's unequal uh, um, feeling or relationship. Whereas, in the eyes of the both, actually, in the eyes of the Danish administration, and also in Theresienstadt, uh, then everybody is considered the same. In Theresienstadt, what was important was the transport number that you got. That means that. Um, uh, each transport has a certain number and this number indicate also where the transport comes from. Uh, And then everybody with a Danish transport number was considered Danish, uh, even though a third of them were were stateless, for example. That didn't mean anything. And the same for for the Danish administration in Copenhagen when they started to send parcels. Uh, For example, they would send to everybody uh, deported from Denmark. Um, So it's it's in in the internal relationship, there are these huge uh, differences. But from the outside, they are all considered uh, from Denmark uh, equally. So... That is, yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, uh, duality, so to say. Well, there's a lot of, of, of very fascinating uh, things to unpack there. First of all, the irony that the Danish state um, then ends up treating them more equally outside Denmark than they were treated within Denmark. Yeah. Uh, the, the converse uh, case with how the uh, camp authorities or the, or the Germans uh, treat them and to some extent, I, I can't but help uh, at least think a little bit about how the the Danish state, uh, of course, in completely different circumstances, uh, categorizes and treats different groups of foreigners in the present day, uh, where that's a very uh, frequently discussed topic in, in Danish politics and society. And then, of course, then the, the aspect which you started out by mentioning is this notion of um, internal, uh, what we could call nesting orientalisms within the group, where um, a group of Jews who were othered by others are also othering themselves internally, and how that plays out uh, also in in the ghetto. So all of these aspects, I think, really cast a lot of nuance on the story of of, of Danish Jews, both before and after their arrival in uh, Theresienstadt. Now, you mentioned that some of the Danish Jews uh, deported to Theresienstadt actually were returned to Denmark. That was, I have to say, one of the aspects of your book that really surprised me. So how did that come about? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's uh, right after the deportations. Uh, the Danish civil administration protested the arrest and deportation of the Jews. Um, and so they get assurances from the German administration of whom were to be deported. So that means that was only full Jews. Uh, however, if a so-called full Jew was married to a non-Jew, then they were not supposed to be deported. And children of mixed marriages were not supposed to be deported either unless they were members of the Jewish community and therefore considered as Jews. And this actually come to mean that in January 44, two Christian women of Jewish descent were returned to Denmark together with two men whose non-Jewish wives lived in Copenhagen and a seven-year-old girl who had been deported with her mother but since her parents were divorced and her father was not Jewish, she was returned as well. And uh, this is after a massive uh, or a continuous, continuously effort by the, the Danish uh, administration in, in Copenhagen. And they actually had listed many more people that they considered so-called mistakenly deported, but... Uh, from the German side, only these five are accepted. And they arrived in Copenhagen in mid-January, something which became crucial for the remaining deportees as the returned uh, discreetly made the authorities in Denmark aware that the prisoners in the ghetto needed food. And um, following this, uh, the entire parcel scheme that I, I already shortly mentioned um, began so uh, that is uh yeah it, it's a very very strange story actually that they are they are sent home after a few months in Theresienstadt. yeah it's it's really a, an amazing aspect and and again one of the uh elements of your book that i i enjoyed in the sense that there are so many uh facets to this story that I think uh, very few people are are aware of, and you do a very good job of of telling us about them, and also, uh, which is very important, making it a very human story where we really feel like we get to know the the people whom you are describing uh, through your historical research. Now, you already alluded to this, but let's come back to the non-Danes, uh, that is to say the uh, those who were in Theresienstadt who were Jewish, uh, but who were uh, not from Denmark, um, how did they perceive this group of Danes and the way they were being treated by the authorities in the ghetto? But, but I, I think that the Danes, they very quickly integrated into this new uh, society they were living in, so to say. They got friends, colleagues, uh, many had close contacts with the Czech prisoners. The Czechs were the largest uh, national group in the ghetto. And of course, uh, when the Danes began to receive parcels in spring 44, they got quite uh, popular. Uh, according to themselves, they did share uh, this wealth. 
uh, according to other ghetto inmates um, of other nationalities, who of course looked at them with envy over these parcels, they could have shared more. It all depends on the eyes that see. Um, but I think there is a there is a lot of documentation about friendships, love affairs, and even marriages between prisoners from Denmark and prisoners from other countries. Often, however, these relations were broken because the non-Danish part was included in a transport to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And from post-war documentation, it is clear that a number of foreign survivors contacted the Jewish community in Copenhagen uh, to get in contact with Danes they knew from the ghetto. So all in all, I think it is fair to say that the relationships between and between the Danes and the non-Danes was quite good. Mm-hmm. Moving back to the the Danish Jews and their Danish roots, we know that there were, uh, and, and indeed are even today, a lot of urban legends uh, that were created, some even during and many after the Second World War, regarding what uh, King Christian X, the Danish king at the time, did to show solidarity with the Danish Jews during the occupation. One of the things that has always surprised me as a historian is the degree to which some of these urban legends even uh, have a resonance and are repeated within uh, the scholarly historiography of, uh, of the Holocaust. What can you tell us about the uh, attitude of the Danish Jews in Theresienstadt? Uh, how did they perceive the king? How did they perceive their identification with, with that aspect of Denmark? But like with most other Danes at the time, uh, King Christian X was very popular also among the Jews. Um, <clears throat> I think d- during the first years of occupation, he became a sort of national symbol of quiet resistance against the occupiers. He would ride through Copenhagen every morning greeting people until he had an accident in October 42. And back in 33, he had visited the central synagogue to celebrate its 100 years anniversary, which uh, took place shortly after Hitler had raced to power in Germany. Upon arrival to the ghetto, Chief Rabbi Friediger actually wrote to the king on two occasions. Unfortunately, these cards or letters seem to have disappeared. But the king did in fact answer not through mail, though, but through an oral greeting sent with the Danish official who participated in the visit in, to the ghetto in June 44. And this greeting had an immense symbolic value for the Danish prisoners who felt that they were not forgotten. So, uh, yeah, I, I, he, he definitely had a, an important... Uh, he played an important role for them, even though that, like, especially among other uh, nationalities, there are these uh, stories that he was behind the food parcels and everything, and that is not so. But, but um, this greeting that that was a very um, a very strong uh, symbol uh, mm-hmm. for the Danes. Mm-hmm. Now. Um... You're telling, as we established at the outset of this interview, in this book, uh, a forgotten or, let us say, at least very neglected 
aspect of the history of the Danish Jews uh, during the Second World War. But also within this neglected history, you are excavating aspects of that story, which perspectives, one could say, which have been missing from the experience of the Danes in Theresienstadt. Um, I could mention, which we're probably not going to discuss here, but I found very interesting uh, the your treatment of, of how of the cultural life of the Danish Jews in Theresienstadt. Uh, I also thought it was very interesting to see how you treat what many could easily regard as a taboo subject, namely the issue of sexuality and, and gender among the uh, Danish Jews in Theresienstadt. But I'd also like to hear uh, about uh, what you've unearthed about the perspective of the elderly Jews, as you mentioned a number of the Jews were were quite elderly, so so please uh, touch a bit on that. Yeah, uh, out of the four hundred and seventy uh, deportees, there were seventy five people who were sixty five years uh, old or older at the time of the deportation, uh, <clears throat> and even though forty three of them survived, there are almost no sources regarding their state. Uh, so we do not have their own perspective of things, um, only what other people tell about uh, the conditions. And um, that's a, a, <laughs> that has been very frustrating for me, actually. I would have liked to, to find at least a few, um, a, a few accounts or something, because it's yeah, it, it's it's a an important lacuna in the in the material that that we do not have their own uh, perspective of things. The the elderly were in many ways among those who had it worst. I think they they got less food uh, because they were not working, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them were lodged in in uh, one of these uh, former military barracks uh, Theresienstadt was a former garrison uh, town and and like the the uh, former military barrack in the worst condition uh, that's that's where many of the of the elderly stayed but uh, it's yeah it's very little we can we can tell about them uh, because they they haven't uh, they haven't left uh, much material and um, yeah so it's then then I had to look in in other ways to find out if uh, yeah it's through sometimes through f- family stories or there are a, a few uh, descriptions in some of the d- diaries where people mention that. They went to see uh, somebody there, but it's it's really hard to to come up with some really consistent about their their conditions. Um, you you mentioned diaries now, and that actually raises a question which uh, we perhaps should have dealt with at the outset. But let's take it now. Uh, could you say just a few words? Uh, Besides diaries uh, that were written or kept, uh, what what kind of sources uh, did you use uh, for uh, or in preparing this book? Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I, I have um, found uh, 
various testimonies in various forms from about a third of the 419 survivors. So the earliest, it's uh, diaries and uh, letters or notes written down in the ghetto. And the latest stem from within the last few years, uh, published accounts or interviews. So it's what I have used is a mix of uh, written and oral sources, some published, others not accessible in museums or archives, or some still with the families. There are many oral testimonies from various collections and I also had the chance to interview 32 Danish survivors myself. Most of them I only visited once or twice, but two of them I returned to several times and, and more and more details unfolded about the experiences in Theresienstadt during these visits. So that has also been a very yeah, fascinating part of, of my research. What is, <clears throat> what is interesting, I think, or what is particular when looking at, the, at the, this testimonial material over time is that the only period at all from which I have not been able to locate one single testimony, it's the years uh, 61 to 64. So it's a period that overlaps the Eichmann trial which is known for having prompted survivors to restart talking about the Holocaust experiences in, in a lot of uh, countries. But this is just not the case for the Danish survivors, probably because the trial also promulgated the exceptional story of the rescue of Danish Jewry, which from then on came to represent Danish Holocaust history. Interesting. So in that sense, the 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 hegemonic tale of Danish Jewry that emerges uh, from the Eichmann trial uh, is you are conjecturing a, a, acting as a kind of suppressant of or suppressor of of the memory of the Theresienstadt Jews from Denmark. Yeah. Now that's that is really fascinating. Um, you devote an entire chapter to the visit to Theresienstadt of an international delegation in June of 1944 and another chapter to the aftermath of the delegation's visit. Why does that international delegation visit figure so considerably in your book? And what is your uh, original take on the visit? <clears throat> the visit is, uh, it was clearly important uh, to the Danish uh, prisoners. Um, <clears throat> And uh, in, in most testimonies from uh, people either belonging to the old Danish families or the Russians, uh, they speak about it. The refugees do mostly not, because many of them were working outside the ghetto that day. Uh, the reason why it was so important for the Danish prisoners was that it was a very Danish visit. Uh, the international delegation was comprised of three non-German visitors, and then a number of Nazi officials and a representative of the German Red Cross. But these international uh, uh, delegates uh, were Maurice Roussel from the International Committee of the Red Cross, who was heading the delegation. And then it was Franz Wess of the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Dr. Eigil Henningsen from the National Board of Health and for the day representing the Danish Red Cross. So... This is, of course, very important for the Danish uh, prisoners that they, they get a visit from home, so to say. 
before the visit, the ghetto had been beautified. Uh, not only was it literally uh, shined up, uh, painted, uh, cleaned, uh, new uh, structures built, but more space also had to be made. Uh, so in May '44, uh, uh, about a month before the the, the visit, about 7,500 people were included in transports to Birkenau. This is in a way directly connected with the Danish group because as part of uh, these preparations for the visit, a, a number of Danes, especially families with small children, were moved to newly refurbished rooms where they were allowed to live together in much less crowded quarters. And um, <clears throat> the day before the visit, the Danish group was directly threatened with transport if they were to reveal the truth about Theresienstadt to the two Danish visitors. During the visit itself, the delegation went to visit one of the so-called Danish houses, and they were allowed to talk to a few prisoners here. Um, however... Danes who had not been granted better accommodation in these uh, Danish houses, they were locked away in an attic during the visit. The, <clears throat> the three delegates returned home and wrote uh, positive reports stating, among other things, that Theresienstadt was not a transit camp. This is something Maurice Rossel has been strongly criticized for, whereas the Danish delegates have been said to have seen through things. However, Franz West wrote exactly the same, and I can quote uh, from his uh, report. He wrote, quote, the camp was no transit camp, but those who had arrived there remained there, unquote. So um, that is very much in line with uh, what Maurice uh, Roussel from the ICRC was, was later criticized for. What, what the delegation was, uh, or what the two Danes did not know, was that um, a few months prior to the visit, one man from the Danish group, a stateless refugee, had been among those included in a transport to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And he did not survive. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that is something they... they they would just listen to what they were told. And then the doctor, he is a little bit more skeptic. If we look at the, the report, you can see in the wording that he, he will be much more cautious, saying we were told so. Uh, um, whereas Franz Wess, it's more, he just says it was this and this and this. So there's a, a difference between the two. Um, uh, I would say that this visit, it was not one visit, but it's actually two, two vis visits uh, under the same umbrella. <clears throat> there's a Danish visit and there's a visit by the ICRC going on at the same time. And even though they, they did compare notes, for example, from the visit afterwards and their reports are very much alike, um, but the purpose of their visits were very different from one another. The Danish delegates were only interested in the well-being of Danish prisoners, and that's what they come to, to look at, whereas the representative of the ICRC had been sent to report on the conditions of all the prisoners in the ghetto.
So uh, for the Danish prisoners, the most important outcome was that finally an official permit was granted to ship food to them. And this actually meant that the Danish Red Cross took over shipments of parcels from the summer 44. From late February, there was a private uh, group of people who had begun sending uh, parcels to the Danes. And the Red Cross, the Danish Red Cross, would not uh, participate in that at that time because a formal permit had not been, uh, been granted. So that's, a, a, that's very important also because when the Red Cross take over the shipments, it means that uh, from then on, two parcels per person is sent per month. When it was this private group that did it, uh, despite uh, a formal permit had not yet been granted, they would send only one parcel per month per person. So, and and then what is important also for the Danes is that those who had been lodged in better in these better living quarters, they are allowed to remain there also after the visit. On the other hand, for the Danish administration, one important outcome of the visit was that they finally. And, and not until that point of time in June 44, obtain a confirmed list of who had actually been deported. Um, because since the deportation took place at the same time as the flight to Sweden, there is a, there's a big confusion about who, is, who has been deported and who has actually made it to safety in, uh, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Now, you just mentioned the, the threat of transportation during your, your response to that question. Uh, Danes were, as you noted at the outset, exempted from the transports from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz-Birkenau. But they were, of course, affected by the deportation of many of those people whom they had come to know in Theresienstadt. So did the Danes, uh, that is the Danish Jews in Theresienstadt, did they actually know themselves that they were exempt from deportation? And how much did they know about the fate of those who were being deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau? Yeah, the, the, they did not know that they were exempted, or at least not in general. Uh, from transport to transport, it would be said that this group is exempted, but they did not know that this would apply to the entire period. One survivor clearly told me that had she just known from the beginning that she would not be included in a transport, then the 18 months in Theresienstadt would have been so much easier to bear. The the fear of being included in a transport, that was really overshadowing uh, everything. This said, it should also be clear that that was not because they knew what Birkenau meant. They they did know that people were sent to Birkenau, it's in Theresienstadt they use Birkenau much more than they use Auschwitz as a like the word, um, but they had no idea that most people were exterminated upon arrival. What they feared, and that is clear for from uh, at least from one diary, is um, this uncertainty of what this other place might be, and also. Um, that they were afraid of the the transport itself. They had already um, 
tried this transport in cattle cars uh, in, in horrible conditions. And that's what people were afraid of, this journey from A to B. Um, but they did not know what was waiting uh, there. There's a, one description in a, in a diary, um, a, a man that describes how a fellow roommate is actually looking forward uh, in May 44 to, uh, to going, to, to be part of this transport, because he believes that he will be reunited in Birkenau with his siblings who had uh, been uh, deported uh, there uh, half a year earlier. But uh, not until January 45, after the arrival of uh, Jews from Seret, uh, did th- that's the first time the Danes hear about um, uh, gas extermination. So, and that's a point where, of course, at that time, that is, uh, <coughs> that's, that's when um, Auschwitz is already uh, always about to be evacuated. There are no more transports uh going out of uh, of terrains that uh, any longer so moving from the the very negative uh to the the positive in in the final chapters of your book i was quite surprised that the surviving danes from theresienstadt uh when they arrived in in denmark in april 1945 were only there very briefly before they were then sent on to Sweden. So, I mean, April 1945, one thinks, well, the, the war is almost over. Uh, why didn't they stay in Denmark? Why were they sent on to Sweden? Yeah, uh, Denmark was still occupied at the time. And this uh, the so-called white buses, this collective Scandinavian rescue mission that had picked up the Danish Jews in Theresienstadt, they were at no uh, point supposed to, to bring them to Denmark but to Sweden. So they, um, yeah, they drove through the still-occupied country and um, yeah, the, the welcome was, uh, was very warm. People handed them cakes and newspapers, cigarettes and so on, uh, especially in the beginning in the, in the, on the peninsula because then at the same day there is the local German headquarters in Odense, on Funen, it's it's bombed by Royal Air Force, and then at that point, the the Germans they um, forbid this uh, welcome, uh, uh, yeah, that people they run to the streets and and welcome uh, the convoy of uh, of buses. So and and then yeah, they stop over in Odense and continue uh to Zealand the next day and from there uh, with the boat uh with the ferry to Sweden where they arrived on April uh, 18 so um yeah that's that is like uh, three weeks still uh, before the end of the of the war mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now uh your book at times to me seems to have within it a certain tension some might even call it a, a contradiction between, on the one hand, pushing against the notion of Theresienstadt and the Danish Jews there as an anomaly, while, on the other hand, acknowledging the suffering of the Danes, how would you describe your own understanding of Theresienstadt within the larger context of the Holocaust? Yeah, Theresienstadt had many functions, and... Yeah, there is this interesting duality that for prisoners who were included in transports to Birkenau and survived, 
they would later remember Theresienstadt as this relatively nice place because what came after was incomparably worse. Whereas the point of view of the Danish survivors is very different because they describe Theresienstadt not in the shadows of Auschwitz-Birkenau or other camps because they only or most of them only experienced uh, this one place of imprisonment. So in the eyes of the Danish ghetto inmates, in spite of their exemption from transports and the important amount of food parcels uh, they received, Theresienstadt was a horrible place of daily misery, fear, hunger, cold and death. Their perception in that sense is not mitigated by the cultural events that also took place or the relative freedom to move around or by the general conditions much better here than in other places. They didn't know that. Uh, only the few people who were in Sachsenhausen first, that's like the, the smallest and last uh, transport from Denmark, it, it's only 16 people and it goes to Sachsenhausen with uh, six men and uh, 10 women and children are brought to Ravensbrück. And then four of the men and all the women and children later come to, to uh, Theresienstadt. The last of them arrive not until April 44th. And uh, only these 14 people uh, have this comparison with other places and... Uh, and then in, in, to the extent that they have given uh, testimonies, they, they, uh, they, they can formulate that how Theresienstadt was so much less brutal than what they had experienced in these, uh, in these other places. But for the vast majority of Danes, Theresienstadt was... Uh, yeah, it's... That's their place of um, of uh, of horror, uh, so to say. That it was so much worse for other people who came to other places. That of course does not change their perception. So, and and that's a very interesting, uh, yeah, duality. I think. Um, of course, and I mean that that. Of, then gets us back to a comment you made uh, in a different context earlier in this interview that that everything is in the eye of the beholder, uh, but I think is also a, a great reminder when dealing with mass atrocities that we need to consider every victim's experience in that particular context in which it was experienced and not ourselves succumb to creating hierarchies of, of terror, as it were. Um, now, for my last question, I'd like to ask you about what has not been covered. And I'm not an expert. You're the expert here. I can only say that in reading your book, I received the impression of very thorough research that had lifted every rock and looked into every corner of the Danish Jews' experience in Theresienstadt. So is there anything left, in your opinion, for future researchers to cover or any related topics that you would like to see covered? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there are still plenty of subjects to, uh, to delve into. Um, I also think that if somebody else would look at the exact same material I have looked at, 
probably they would have a hundred other questions who have not come to my mind. Uh, I, I think I'm sure that there are still many uncovered uh, aspects. What I would like to 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 do or would be I, I, something I, I did cover a bit. It's, uh, for example, parenting in Theresienstadt, but there's not much, like with the elderly, there's not much uh, material, but I'm sure that, that uh, much more is to be said about that. Um, there were so many families deported among the Danes, and even though it's, it's not so much we have uh, about the, the experience of being a parent, I, I'm sure that much more could be said than, than what I'm saying. And the same also goes for... For the elderly, I, I'm I'm sure that that yeah we we could uh, we could find out more with uh, with more research into this. Um, there is uh, there is one particular uh, subject which I would like to go into myself. That is like pre Theresienstadt. It's uh, it's about uh, informers uh, at the moment when. Uh, when Danish Jews are caught in uh, in Denmark, that's something that has uh, there's not much that had been said about that, and and there is actually quite some uh, some material. So yeah, I'm sure that uh, there's a uh, a lot to uh, to write about still. Um, <laughs> so we should just start uh, digging. <laughs> Well, let's hope that people do keep digging. Um, thank you to you for a, a really thorough and I think incredibly informative book. And I, it's also a book which, uh, given that we are in 2022 and will next year in Denmark have the 80th anniversary of uh, the October 1943 rescue, I certainly hope that those commemorations will also remember to cover uh, as a part of the Danish Jewish experience during the Holocaust, uh, the experience of the Jews uh, in the Theresienstadt ghetto, because your book makes it very clear that that is an enormously important uh, and unfortunately neglected aspect of the, uh, one could say, more positive story of Danish Jewry during the Holocaust as a whole. My guest today in this uh, episode of the New Books Network has been Sylvia Goldbaum Tarabini Fragapane, who is a historian and independent scholar, and we've been discussing her new book, The Jews of Denmark in the Holocaust, Life and Death in the Theresienstadt Ghetto, published by Routledge in 2021. Sylvia, thank you very much for being my guest today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And on that note, listeners, I hope to hear again from you soon and uh, we'll be along in a few weeks with another episode. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.